0: You're listening to an ACCA
1: podcast. Good evening, and welcome to ACCA. My name is Annabelle Lacroix. I'm ACCA's curator for public programs. Welcome to tonight's lecture, Mexico on Film, The Actor, The Protagonist, which takes place alongside our current exhibition, Dwelling Poetically, Mexico, A Case Study, curated by Chris Sharp. To begin, I would like to sincerely acknowledge the boomerang the traditional owners and sovereign custodians on the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we extend our respects to elders, past and present, and all First Nations people who join us this evening. Tonight's lecture will focus on Mexico City as a protagonist in its own right. As a central subject of many films, it has been given various roles throughout the history of cinema, Tonight, Mexican-born, Melbourne-based filmmakers Antonio González and César Abarán Torres will explore the evolution of urban space and how it has been portrayed by a myriad of Mexican filmmakers and international contemporary artists. Illustrated with a range of examples by directors such as Luis Bunuel, Maria Sistak, or Costa Gavras, the talk will focus on the tension between tradition and postmodernity social struggles or political upheaval, global cultural forces, and local identity. Now I would like to introduce our speakers. Antonio Gonzalez is an Associate Research Fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalization at Deakin University. He's also an Associate Researcher in the History Division at the Center for Researching and Teaching Economics in Mexico City. He has published articles on Alfonso Cuaron the Cannes Film Festival and his book, A Brief History of Experimental Cinema, was published in 2012. We also joined with César Abaran Torres, who is a lecturer in media and communication at Swinburne University of Technology, where he teaches in the cinema and screen studies program. He has been widely published in academic and non-academic titles as a film and literary critic, critic author and translator. He is the current editor of the journal Senses of Cinema and his book, Digital Gambling Theorizing Gamble Play Media, was published by Routledge and launched just last week. So please join me in making Antonio and Cesar welcome.
2: Thank you. Has anyone here, was anyone here born in Mexico City, besides any fellow Chilangos? How would you describe Mexico City in five to words? Anyone?
3: Incredible,
2: amazing, crazy, fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Anyone else? Anyone who wasn't born in Mexico City, how would you describe it? Busy. <laughs> huh?
3: Busy.
2: But that's right. Very busy. Very busy, yeah. So busy, beautiful, chaotic, and amazing. I would share, I would share all, yeah, anyone else? Yeah. Huge. Huge. Yeah, I mean, it stretches as far as your eye can see. When you get, when you fly down to Mexico City, if you fly in at night, it's just like a sea of fireflies that just doesn't end. I love my hometown. It's beautiful, chaotic, and amazing. As Marcos? Yeah, as Marcos said. Arturo, sorry. So uh, I don't know why I called you Marcos. My uncle Marcos looks a little bit like you. Maybe that's why. So we tried to sort of identify four main sort of like groups or groupings of films that have depicted Mexico City, or that have used Mexico City as a location. Our list is not comprehensive, because you can't have a comprehensive list of films that take place in Mexico City, but I think it will pretty much be a starting place for you to explore our city through film. These two images are from Carlos Raigadas' uh, Battle in Heaven, which we will discuss further down this, uh, this presentation. And they encapsulate pretty much the busyness as, what's your name, sorry? Uh, noon. Noon, as what Noon said about the busyness of Mexico City. It just doesn't stop. The only city as busy as Mexico City that I have been to is Hanoi, and that's saying a lot. So Mexico City in a nutshell. Mexico City would define a kaleidoscope, Mm -hmm. It's three contrasting mirrors, three facing mirrors of culture, identity, sexual, gender politics, race politics, which is a sort of taboo in Mexican society, but that a lot of films that we're going to be talking about depict. It's a very complex city, not only in its beauty and in its everyday chaos, but also in how it deals with these issues, the role of women the role of indigenous cultures, this idea of being a mestizo, such as myself. Mm -hmm. I recently did the ancestry.com thing, and I'm 39% indigenous, then like 39% Spanish, so we're all a mix of different cultures. It was first called Tenochtitlan by the Aztecs uh, around the 14th century, then it became the epicenter of the new Spain not only of what is now considered Mexico, but what is now considered Central America, the southern US, Central America it was the epicenter of the Spanish colonial power in the Americas. So that in itself is very complex. And colonial times, which lasted for a long, long time, three, 400 years, are very complex in that sense as well. Today, it is a megalopolis that has extended far beyond the jurisdictional limits of of what used to be the Distrito Federal, which has now been renamed as CDMX, Ciudad de Mexico. I mean, if you go to a city like Toluca, for example, you can't tell where Mexico City ends and Toluca begins. Mm -hmm. Or Cuernavaca. You can't really tell some people live in Cuernavaca and commute to Mexico City every single day. So it has just expanded immensely. Mm-hmm. And it's super hard to define where it begins and where it ends. And that's uh, portrayed in some of the films that we'll be discussing. It has a population of over 20 million people. About that, it is very hard to keep tax on the actual population of Mexico City, because a lot of people from Other parts in Mexico City come into the city and are not accounted for in the census. And also, a lot of Central American migrants use it as a passageway to uh, to the US, for instance. So it has a huge floating population as well. It is a global north and the global south contained in a city. And that speaks of the huge inequalities in terms of income, in terms of opportunity, in terms of technology that Mexico City experiences every day. You have something like that huge toilet bowl called the Museo Sumaya, and you have like big shopping malls. The richest people in Mexico City are richer than the richest people in Australia. Then you have colonial buildings, and then you have also, in the outskirts of Mexico City, people living in extreme poverty. So in terms of narrative and in terms of filmmaking, that provides a very interesting and vivid and uh, rich canvas for filmmakers and documentary filmmakers and contemporary artists. There's other cultures that are not necessarily associated generally with Mexico City, like the Jewish diaspora. Uh, Many of the power players in the Mexican film industry come from the Jewish community, so a lot of producers, a lot of filmmakers, uh, people like Alejandro Springle, for example, have made movies about the Jewish community in Mexico. So uh, they are big power players, just like in the early days of Hollywood. They are big power players in uh, the Mexican film industry. There's a huge Korean community that not many people know about outside of Mexico, Central American diasporas. And this cohabits side to side with European, indigenous, and mestizo cultures. Hmm? Which, again, makes uh, Mexico City a very hard place to grasp by filmmakers. We don't have like a Manhattan, uh, like Woody Allen's Manhattan for New York or Breathless or Band Apart for Paris. We don't have the epitome of the Mexico City film, which speaks of the complexity of this urban space. So, just last night, Antonio shared this video with me and we're going to play it in its entirety. It's by uh, Santiago Arau, who's a contemporary filmmaker, an artist, who's using drones to capture the city. So it just plays for one minute. <laughs>
0: que lo quiero no llevar. Llegar al centro, atravesarlo, es un desmoche. Un hormiguero no tiene tanto animal.
2: kind of vibrancy that Mexico City has. And now Antonio's gonna talk about uh, the first film ever shot in Mexico City.
0: Thank you, Cesar. So, um, Cesar speaks in a very free way. I need my script to talk about Mexico City. The history of Mexican film starts with the first film shot in Mexico in 1896, in Mexico City, made by the production company of the Lumiere brothers. The fact that the first moving object that the camera captured was the then-Mexican president, or dictator, Porfirio Diaz, is fitting since from its birth, the film industry and the Mexican state have always been enmeshed in an intricate relationship where relations of power are uneven. In fact, up to this date, filmmakers who wish to shot their film in Mexico require the support from the state in the form of permissions, funding, and granted exhibition rights. Before we start the talk today, please be aware that this presentation will not be delivered in a chronological order, but thematic. So we're gonna talk about Mexican social realism, and we're gonna give some examples. The same with the new and the new, new Mexican cinemas, then later, we're going to talk about how foreign filmmakers look at Mexico City. And finally, um, we're going to discuss some of the experimental films that have been shot in Mexico City.
2: So we're first going to discuss Mexican social realism, which follows on the literary tradition of uh, late 19th century and early 20th century Europe. We can think of Emile Solás' Germinal, for example. We can think of... Uh, Dickens' stories in the slums of London, all these type of narratives that came out of the Industrial Revolution, where people migrated from the countryside to the cities and found out that maybe, you know, having so many people in a single urban space wasn't the best idea in the world. So a lot of poverty, a lot of conflicting narratives in terms of race, in terms of class, started to come out of uh, Mexico. So, cinematic realism, in a nutshell, is a sort of counter proposal to Hollywood filmmaking, which is all about flair and it's all about the artificial. Cinematic realism tries to capture the particularities of a determinate social and historical setting, rendering truth more truthful than it is in reality. We can think of British social realism, for example. Mm -hmm. both in the earlier half of the 20th century and later with people like uh, Mike Lee or Ken Logue people that went to a place with almost a documentarist kind of uh, point of view and tried to express through film the real in reality rather than the artifice in reality Mm -hmm. and one of the first ones to do this ironically was a surrealist filmmaker, Luis Buñuel, through which one, I think it's the best movie ever filmed, but that's just me. Many people might disagree, which is uh, The Young and the Damned, or Los Olvidados. you want me to play the... Yes, please. Yeah. So this... Oh, sorry.
0: Oh.
3: Uh,
0: it doesn't play. Very... Oh, no worries. There's so, a short clip. So, Los Olvidados, a surrealist masterpiece. This film, who won Buñuel the Best Director Award at the Cannes Film Festival in 1950, was considered for many decades by many Mexican film critics and scholars the best Mexican film ever shot. Before shooting the film, Buñuel visited many of the slums outside Mexico City to witness firsthand how the people who migrated from the provinces to the city due to a lack of opportunities in their hometowns live and fulfill their dreams for a better life. As early as the 1940s, shanty towns began to appear on the outskirts of Mexico City, and Buñuel actually shot some, of the, some scenes of the film in these slums. The film follows a group of rascals who mainly pass their time performing petty crime activities. Buñuel knew how to portray these rascals and their families because he had witnessed similar aspects of poverty and misery in Spain, where he shot the documentary on Las Urdes, a poor rural area of his homeland. The film makes emphasis on the fact that people who belong to the working classics experience the city differently because they cannot access the city in the same way. Mm. Through their dreams, and their everyday activities, Buñuel constructs a raw portrait of two cities and focuses on the effects that one city creates on those who don't have the right to exist on the other side of the city. The hardness with which he portrayed Mexico City earned Buñuel that a part of the Mexican population asked the Mexican authorities to apply article 33 of the Mexican constitution which specifies that a foreigner can be expelled from the country in case it interferes with the affairs of the nation. But that time Buñuel had been natural as Mexican, so he was not expelled from the country. (laughs) Another film that we want to talk about is Los Caifanes. I need to make just sure that we couldn't actually find a translation for this title. It actually comes from English. It's divided in two words. Kai, like fall, but in Mexican Spanish is like, and fine. So I like you fine. So people who were good, who were in the vibe, who were nice, were Kai fine. Now a very a famous group uh, who uh, started a rock in the band, 19- yeah. a rock band yeah. in the 1980s um, put that name in, uh, in vogue. But in 1967, uh, this film was um, shot in Mexico City. This film follows a couple of rich juniors who encounter by chance a foursome of working-class scoundrels. So you can see the two rich kids. So um, this guy on the left was actually the son of Maria Felix, one of the most uh, famous uh, film actresses in the golden era. And the girl is played by Julissa, a very famous pop singer um, and actress. And on your right side, you have Oscar Chavez, who now is considered to be another troubadour of Mexico City. (laughs) So together, the scoundrels and the rich juniors spend the entire night cruising along the city. Through their eyes we discover a city that is booming and expanding, and at the same time remains provincial in its character. Influenced by the work of Godard, especially Vanaparte, the film portrays the sexual tension between one member of the gang here, Oscar Chavez, and the wealthy woman played by Julissa. Not only a famous singer and actress of the 1960s, but also a symbol of the new generation of Mexican actors who supplanted the matinee idols of the 1930s and 40s Mexican film golden era. The film shows movingly the dark side of the city where drunkards, poets, and prostitutes roam the city of the city in search of identity, inspiration, and illusion. In the morning, while eating breakfast, Both sides of Mexican classes, upper and low, realize that they share the same city and the same food to finally take different paths. The wealthy couple make amends while the four rascals continue their journey. Just a little parenthesis here. Does this remind you
2: of a movie from the French New Wave? Yeah, anyone? Can anyone tell me which movie it is? So it pretty much reminds us of Band Apart, right? The two men and the girl listening to music, so there's clear influences here in Mexican cinema from what was going on in world cinema as well. So Mexican cinema was not foreign to these kinds of influences. This movie, um, has anyone watched this movie before, Principio Fin, so it was directed by Arturo Ripstein, who's one of the most prolific filmmakers in, uh, in Mexico throughout history. For me this is his masterpiece, it's an epic, a three-hour family epic that follows a lower class family that tries to break into the middle class. So he's a smart one, he's a telenovela heartthrob, Ernesto LaGuardia. So he's a smart one in the family, right? And the whole family works towards him doing a university degree in this kind of having social mobility through education. Hmm? Then the the movie starts when the father dies. Hmm? He applies for a scholarship. He doesn't get it. And because of that, because of the lack of opportunity to move upwards in the social scale, the family just breaks apart. It's beautifully shot. It is very much in the epic family, Tradition and also into the, in the social realist tradition with very low-key settings.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: A lot of the movie takes place in a vecindad, which is this type of residential building in Mexico City where a lot of families cohabit, but not in an isolated way, but rather in a very communal way. There's a central courtyard, generally. It follows the uh, Moorish tradition of having courtyards in the middle of uh, residential buildings, and you know, the kids play together, and uh, you know, mothers watch each other's kids. It's a very communal thing. So Rifstein really got into the heart of that type of community in Mexico City, something that we hadn't seen in Mexican cinema
3: before. Hmm?
2: There's also a contradiction in Mexican cinema, trying to portray the city as something that's not the third world or the global south or you know a developing country however you want to to to, uh, to uh, describe it yep no it was set in 1993 like mm-hmm. based yeah. On that era. yeah based on that era which was during the Salinas de Gortari presidency where there were these high dreams of being part of the first world of progress, of neoliberal ideologies, of inclusion of Mexico in the the global economies, right? So it's a tale of desperation and a tale of broken promises and broken hopes. So yeah, that's a great question. And it's very telling of that time. It was like, you know, 1988, new president, neoliberal, a doctor from a foreign university, You know, we are all together, we're going to come together as a country and enter the first world. But guess what? It didn't happen. Hmm? So this tale tells that national story in a sort of like microcosm of despair. It's a very gloomy film, so if you're gloomy yourself, don't watch it yet, but it's a fantastic film. It's three hours
0: long, so yeah, just, yeah, it's a fantastic film. So. As um, Cesar was saying, the 1980s saw the destruction of the film, of the Mexican film industry that had produced some of the most experimental and aesthetically exciting films in Mexican history during the 1970s. The works of Felipe Casals, Jaime Humberto Hermosillo, and Arturo Ripstein back in the 70s, to name a few, attest to the quest by younger filmmakers to tell new and different stories sometimes using experimental narratives. The crisis was eventually surmounted, but the period 1988-1993 was a good time to be alive in Mexico. A propaganda campaign by the government convinced 80 million people that Mexico was going to join for the first time in its history, the ranks of the first world. Through TV spots and the Mexican version of Live Aid, a government headed by technocrat and neoliberal Carlos Salinas de Gortari, achieved to hide the poverty and the misery to create a fantasy land where Mexico was depicted as one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Films produced during this time did not openly praise the government of the time, but some movies did share a sense of the optimism and hope that made Mexicans believe that they were finally going to share the cake with the Western world. Some directors, like the recently Oscar winner Guillermo del Toro, step away from social realism to make a film, Kronos, that dwell on fantasy, horror, and suspense, something unthinkable decades before. Solo con tu pareja, translated in English as Loving Times of Hysteria, was perhaps the first Mexican film that showed to what extent Mexico City could be part of the International Club of the Megalopolis. Not only the film contains memorable scenes shot at landmark locations, such as the Torre Latinoamericana, but it also tells the story of a Yuppie and his deeds framed by iconic Mexican settings, such as the Cantina. Hmm. More than any other film from this period, Solo con tu pareja portrayed a vibrant city full of life with people leading busy and productive lifestyles in the same way as their counterparts in Europe or the USA. The look of the film was key to stand out from previous films. To achieve an innovative aesthetic, Alfonso Cuaron, the director, supported by his longtime collaborator, Emmanuel Lubezki, the the, the photographer, decided to shoot the entire film in a green palette. So next time you see Amélie, remember that before Amélie, there was Solo con tu pareja. Mm-hmm. And then
2: came El Callejón de los Milagros. Has anyone watched this film before? Mm-hmm. So an established director, such as Jorge Fons, used social realism but took, but took Mexican social realism to a global market.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Not only did he identify a young actress, do you know, do you guys know who this is? Yeah, Salma Hayek, right? She's recognized worldwide. She's the epitome of Mexicaness in many countries. Mm -hmm. She's a very controversial figure for some in Mexico. Mm -hmm. But he identified this young telenovela actress and this movie made her a star. So we have the breakthrough of actresses and actors from Mexican cinema into Hollywood. And I would say that this movie is landmark and a departing point for that. And we also have two main influences. One, the novel on which it is based by Naguib Mahfouz, the Egyptian novelist who won the Nobel Prize in Literature. And two, it was an ensemble film in the vein of, say, Robert Allman's ensemble films. Mm-hmm. So just like Los Caifanes had influences from the New bag, we have influences for quality cinema in Hollywood via mm, people like Robert Allman, as I said, or Sidney Lumet in Mexican social realism. This movie was highly successful worldwide. Mm-hmm. It was the sort of calling card for Mexican cinema in other countries for many years and also went into the insides of Avecindad and the insides of Mexico's, Mexico City's historic, historic downtown, El Centro Historico mm-hmm, of Mexico City. And it was shot in a way that it hadn't been shot before. Not to showcase the colonial beauty of the setting, but to really go deep into the lives of the people that lived there. Mm-hmm. I have many quarrels with this film, especially in terms of sexual politics. Mm-hmm. There's a queer character, uh, Don Ruti, if you've seen the movie uh, Edgar Gomez Cruz, mm, that is, very, is portrayed in a very negative light, as if he's betraying the family by opening up to his sexuality. So I have quarrels, quarrels with this movie, but it's a very good example of this internationalization of. Mexican cinema. Play it. And I'm sure you, many of you have watched this
0: movie before. What did you do, What did you do? Nothing, man! How You're not
1: a you're a Are
0: you still What, are still se está desangrando un chingo este cabrón, bro. Tápale la herida, tápale la herida ahí. ¿Qué puedo, cabrón? Con el dedo, cabrón. Es mucha sangre, güey. Ahí vienen esos ojetes. ¡Métele, güey! ¡Métele, cabrón! ¡Métele, cabrón! ¡Métele, güey! Oh, ya muchos ojetes, cabrón.
3: ¡Ciñe su madre! ¡Aguate!
0: Madre, cabrón. con esos, esos pinches cabrones, ¿cómo se te ocurre meterte, cabrón? Ya se murió, carajo, ya se murió. No, 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 puta ch- 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 contéstame, chingado. No, cabrón, pues, se está cayendo. Puto madre, está sangrando más, güey. Sal de tu Verga, 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 agástate, agástate, agástate. ¿Tengo, Tengo una ¿t- pistola, ¿t- cabrón. ¿t- 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 cabrón, traen una pistola, güey.
3: cargó la verga, cabrón. ¿t-
0: ¡Ah, huevo! ¡A huevo! ¡Síguete derecho, cabrón! ¡Vamos a la casa de Chile aquí, güey! ¡De ¡Puta madre! madre. ¡Métele, cabrón! cabrón! ¡Agáchate, güey! ¡Métele, cabrón! ¡Métele, güey! So those are the 2-3 minutes of the opening scene of the um, uh, film uh, made in the 21st century. Uh, so the, 20th, the 21st century saw the making of this film that due to its experimental and cutting edge style, as you can see, was paramount to frame Mexico City as a place where drama and tension are part of everyday life. So from its opening shot, and you can see it's just the, the, the pavement, it's just the, the asphalt on screen, Mexico City is depicted as a hyper a place where little redemption can be reached for the city inhabitants. Have you noticed that
2: there's something missing from all the movies that we've shown so far, discussed so far? Anyone? Yes, exactly.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So. No, 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 yeah, but women directors.
3: Uh, Ah, that's another
2: story. So uh, the Mexican film industry hasn't been very accommodating, sadly, to uh, Mexican filmmakers. There's a fantastic, I'm not advertising this, but there is a book that they are selling here on uh, female Mexican filmmakers, but there's not many, Mm -hmm. which is a big lack in the landscape of uh, Mexican filmmaking. The next three films that I'm going to briefly discuss have to do with the depiction of sexual politics and gender politics in Mexico City from the year 2000 onwards, Mm -hmm. with things that are considered taboo. One of them is sexual abuse and violence against women, which, if you follow the news, if you know about uh, the dead women of Juarez, if you know about the huge toll of female deaths during the drug cartel wars in the last few years, you know that being a woman in Mexico is hard.
3: Hmm?
2: And being a woman who's in a vulnerable situation in terms of sexual violence is even harder. So this movie follows these two teenagers, one of whom is raped in a microbus, which is uh, public transport, which is privatized. It's a big mess, public transport in Mexico City. But she's raped. Hmm? And it's the aftermath of that. So Mar- uh, Marisa C. Satch filmed this uh, movie, and it, you know, no one, no one is listening. So that, that was a big call, right? No one is listening. And there's all of these stories that have to do with that, that are not being told. When I watched it, uh, I immediately thought of Once Were Warriors, the New Zealand film by Lita Mahor, which also deals with uh, sexual abuse. Hmm? So this is one of the films that discusses these taboo elements of Mexican society. Hmm? From the year 2000 on, Batalla en el Cielo, has anyone watched this movie before? I think it's a, it's a brilliant movie uh, by Carlos Reigadas, a very controversial filmmaker. Some of them think that, and excuse my, pardon my French, that he's just a wanker filmmaker. And some people think that he's brilliant. Cuaron says that he's the best film, Mexican filmmaker currently. Hmm? So uh, Carlos Reigadas confronts the viewer mm, by showing sex scenes between a lower-class man who's a driver, mm, a private driver for a family, um, an indigenous-looking working-class man, and a European-looking posh girl mm, who, like in Buñuel's Belle de Jour, engages in sex work out of boredom. mm and then sleeps with, sleeps with him. So when this movie was released, it was highly controversial. Hmm? She's the daughter of one of the executives of Televisa, which is one of the biggest, um, it, which is the biggest media company in Mexico. There was like a tug of war between Regadas and this uh, woman's father, in terms of the release of the film. There was, there's a flash scene that opens the film, and, uh, Raigadas had to publicly declare that it was fake, that it wasn't an actual uh, sexual act, but Raygadas confronts the viewer with something that Mexican audiences hadn't seen before, outside of porn, of course, which is a sexual encounter between a lower-class man and an upper-class woman, Hmm? young woman. So young and old, you know, and slightly, uh, well, overweight man, and a very beautiful woman. So this idea of confrontation is something that comes out of the earlier 21st century. Because, you know, people, race is a taboo thing in Mexico, right? If you ask a Mexican, are Mexicans generally racist? They would say, oh, no. And then in the traffic jam, they would go, hey, pinche indio, stop, right? Which is an insult, like calling someone an indigenous person, which I think is disgusting. Mm-hmm. So Regadas confronts that being a posh guy himself. Hmm? And then Julián Hernández's queer cinema. Has anyone watched Julián Hernández's movies? No? So uh, he's a fantastic queer filmmaker. He has a knack for having very, very long titles for his movies. (laughs) And he shows romantic movies between men in in a way that doesn't highlight the queerness of the narrative. Mm -hmm. He's highly regarded in uh, the Teddy Awards in Berlin, for example, which is like the principal showcase for queer cinema in the world, and depicts Mexico City in a very beautiful way. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Just mundane scenes, like an overpass here, that are shot very beautifully. I Am Happiness on Earth is a movie that's available on Netflix Australia, and if you have the chance to watch it, that's the second uh, screenshot there. I would highly recommend it. It's beautifully shot, and it depicts, as I said, Mexico City in a very different light.
0: So, filmmakers from around the world have used Mexico City in their films, sometimes alluding to the city itself, the most recent example is the James Bond film Spectre, but most of the times as a stand-in for something else, either paradise or hell. The main reason may seem economical Film crews are cheaper to hire in Mexico than in the USA But it also speaks about the versatility of the city to be and become something else
2: For example, uh, Costa Gavras, the political Greek filmmaker, released this movie Missing Has anyone watched this before? Yep So it's about uh, the Pinochet years in Chile so an American man, played by Jack Lemon goes to Chile with uh, the guy's partner, played by Cesar Spacek, to try to find this political prisoner during the Pinochet regime. Now, this was shot in um, downtown Mexico City. And Mexico City was a standing for Santiago de Chile. I, I have talked to my father about this movie many times. He told me that when he went to watch it, he cried. He was at the 1968 student protests in Mexico City. He, he tells me how he was running from the soldiers, and he saw like his mates being killed. Uh, so it was a very traumatic experience for him, of course. And watching this film echoed in his memory, and I would say in the memory of many Mexicans. There hadn't been a movie about the 1968 student massacre in Mexico by 1982. Hmm? Some of them came later, like Rojo Amanecer, for example, but there really weren't many of them. Hmm? So through depicting Pinochet's Chile, Costa Gabras also spoke to Mexico City's population about political upheaval, repression, and what Vargas Llosa called the perfect dictatorship in Mexico.
0: So we have Total Recall, Um, part of these films were actually shot in Mexico City's underground metro system as we can see here. This is a chase scene where the police are after the main character, Quaid, and they run up and down the stairs of the underground system. Um, Although the underground system was introduced in Mexico City not until 1968, Paul Verhoeven, the Dutch filmmaker, the director of the film, actually chose to depict the future in this setting among other locations. And the future here is represented by the brutalist architectural style of the underground station. And here I just want to say a, a, a small comment that um, around, uh, in 1993, Arturo Ripstein, when uh, he tried to actually shoot uh, one scene in the underground uh, system for Principio uh, Fin in 1993, uh, he was denied the rights To use the underground system to shoot his film, whereas three years before they gave a Hollywood film the permission to actually shoot the film.
2: And I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this film, Uh, Romeo plus Juliet or Romeo and Juliet by Baz Luhrmann was actually shot in Mexico City and Veracruz, uh, a seaside city in Mexico and just like Almodóvar had been captivated by Mexico City's vibrancy, and he has wings to this in a Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown with that taxi driver that is based on a Mexican taxi driver, a very kitsch kind of setting. Bas Lurman was fascinated by this you know, like vibrant, colorful, and kitsch nature of Mexico City. And as Antonio said, the relationship between the state and power and Mexican filmmakers is quite, there's a lot of negotiations. Mm -hmm. And it's quite tricky, that relationship, in terms of grants, permissions, Mm -hmm. to shoot, just like Ripstein. And does anyone know where this is set, actually? So this is the Castillo de Chapultepec, which is a heritage site, historical site, and they just let Baz Luhrmann go crazy here. Mm-hmm. which also talks of this idea of Mexico being part of the global economy, and this very, very, very taboo uh, thing in the Mexican ethos of you know doing for foreigners, for the gringos, what we can't do for our own you know, co-nationals. So this is a very good example. I mean, I have nothing against Van Lurman or the <laughs> or the movie, but it does speak of the complacency that Mexico City authorities have towards foreign filmmakers. Like, I mean, Antonio mentioned uh, Spectre, the recent James Mond movie, which was shot in uh, downtown Mexico City, and they just went crazy, hmm, and got a lot of money from the government. I know that the government asked for the city to be shot in a certain way, to make it look more touristy. So
0: that's, I mean, we could talk about that another day, but yeah. So, the last part, uh, we're finishing with three more slides, and we're gonna, um, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about three experimental films, Um, probably not films, because some of them were actually made in video, but nevertheless, they were shot in Mexico City, and they talk about Mexico City. So, um, I'm gonna talk about um, Heart, then I'm gonna talk about Paradox of the Praxis and Spiral City. The last two, Spiral City and Paradox of the Praxis, you can actually find them here as part of the exhibition. Uh, But yes, please, let's stop. So we have here mi corazón, so it means my heart. Paula Weiss, or Weiss, was the first female artist who used video and dance as a combined art form in Latin America. In this film from 1986, one year after the earthquake that devastated Mexico City on September 19, Vice reflects on the event as part of the traumatic experience that millions of Mexicans endured the year before. In the video, Vice juxtaposes images captured during and after the earthquake, as here, with pictures of a pumpkin pumping heart. The title means heart. And that is how Mexico City is often referred to as in the heart of the country, a statement that still resonates to this day. Mexico is a centralized country, and Mexico City is still regarded by many as the center of the country where the cultural and artistic activities take place. So if you don't live in Mexico City, you'll probably missing out of all the action. That's not true. Yes, it's the other way around. And here we have Paradox of the Praxis that you can see here in the, um, in the um, exhibition. The experimental uh, Belgian artist uh, took action and activity as the main themes he explored in his most famous video. Alice pushes an ice cube for nine hours in around Mexico City, thus creating perhaps one of the most moving and poetic pieces of visual art that depicts Mexico City as a secondary character. The camera not only captures the artist's physical exhaustion while moving the block of ice through the cityscape, but it also captures the rhythm of a city and its inhabitants. The ice, as a metaphor of the city, becomes smaller and smaller through the contact and the heat. As the inhabitants of Mexico City, the weather, the streets, and the sounds shape the life of its population. The film shows several moments without filters or lenses that may distort the color and sounds of the city. It shows the physiognomy of the city, the intricate streets, and their uneven stairs. Next please. The final film that I want to briefly talk about is the work of English artist Melanie Smith, who shot one of the most famous suburbs of Mexico City, Iztapalapa, from a bird's eye view and in black and white. The appealing footage shows a calm city from above, and it mesmerizes the viewer through through the grid that colonizers built when they founded their cities in America using architectural and perspective theories from the Renaissance, nonetheless. And that's it from me. (laughs) You want to add something? No. Thank you very much. That's it from us.
2: I think we have a few minutes for a Q&A.
0: Yep. Just, just the last film. Uh, yeah. That one. Yeah, just on the last film, it, it, the whole film was just um, shooting of the city around Iztapalapa. And, and what was the, uh, the focus of, of the city? Just the structures, the streets, the people? So this film is actually the, the, the title of this, the, the film is called Spiral City and it resonates with a very famous um, experimental work of art that it's in Utah, in the United, in the United States, and it was made by um, an experimental artist called Robert Smith. Now, Robert Smith actually made a film about an artwork that it's called Earthwork. So he did a spiral using material stuff, and then he did a video about it. And from my interpretation, I don't know about Melanie, we should ask Melanie or we should ask uh, Max here. Um, My interpretation is that he, she, sorry Melanie, she wanted to create the same sense of calmness, the same sense of, um, you know, I mean, the beauty of a city when you look at it from a bird's eye view. Now, having said that, of course, once you go down in the ground, the city is everything except calm. But once you look at these images, they're just mesmerizing. So how can, what, how can I say this? It's, um, it's, a, it's an experimental work of art. It's, a, it's an artwork. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, it took a long time to do it. Uh, you know, you have to hire a helicopter, which is really expensive. And then you have to prepare the shots. And then you have to look uh, for the different um, shades of black it and the white. This was before drones. Sorry? This was before drones. <laughs> <laughs> this was before drums, yeah. drums. yes. Drones, yeah. just music the background? I don't think there has a musical background, no. Yeah. No, no. no, but, but
2: it's, uh, I mean, has anyone been to Iztapalapa before? Yeah, so it's, uh, so Mexico City is divided in what we call delegaciones. Hmm? And Iztapalapa is one of the most conflicted jurisdictions in Mexico City, in, in the sense that, A lot of illegal, quote unquote, because I don't think that having a home is illegal, but a lot of illegal settlements, Mm -hmm. a lot of the slums as well, are in Iztapalapa. There's a long history of uh, activism Mm -hmm. in Iztapalapa as well. When you know, like, there's a major uh, election coming up, people talk about opportunities for the people of Iztapalapa because it's the most densely populated jurisdiction in Mexico City. So as Antonio said, it's anything but peaceful. Mm -hmm. You'll
0: have to remember one thing. I think that Melanie Smith feel attracted to this kind of grid-like city.
1: Mm. Because
0: in Europe, this doesn't exist. So what I said is that when the Spanish came to Mexico City, they realized that they had theories from the Renaissance in terms of perspective and urbanism uh, from an Italian guy called uh, Leon Alberti Battista. And they actually did the grid thing, but it was it was not only because it looked beautiful; it was because in that way they could control the population.
3: Mm.
0: You know, because in Spain you have all these towns, and Madrid is like a you know, crisscross. Yeah. So, probably she felt really attracted to this kind of grid. Mm.
1: Um, to answer your question, the sound is um, just a bit of ambient sound from uh, the city. Yeah. Yep. Uh, thank you both. That's fascinating um, presentation. I was just wondering, given the constraints that you were speaking about
2: in terms of the government and support for local uh, filmmakers, are you, in terms of what may be emerging, are you optimistic at all in any way, or do you think things are pretty stuck still? Well, I, I am I am optimistic. I I follow the Mexican film industry for many years. I was the f- editor of a film magazine in Mexico. And filmmakers like Regadas, like Amate Escalante, for example, like Everardo González who recently shot a beautiful documentary on the cartel wars. They are looking for support elsewhere. So there's a central government institution called IMCINE, Instituto Mexicano de Cinematografía which basically gives money Mm -hmm. to filmmakers. And up to very recently, it was almost impossible to get a project off the ground without them seeing Mm
3: -hmm.
2: That also has ties with the two main exhibitors. Because, I mean, you have a movie, but then what do you do with the movie, right? So there's exhibition and distribution as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, they have ties with the government. There's two main uh, companies, Cinemex and Cinepolis, which is a very, very old um, sort of like uh, movie distribution and exhibition company that have ties with the government. So how are they looking for support? Through schemes in film festivals elsewhere. Through the Sundance Film Festival, for example, they have this uh, script writing residency, and people like Fernando Emke. has anyone watched Duck Season, Temporada de Patos? That was developed, as well as his second movie, Lake Tahoe. Uh, with the help of Sundance. Uh, the Cannes Film Festival also provides residencies for uh, Spanish filmmakers. Spanish television. Spanish television. Uh, Escalante's recent movie, The Untamed, or La Región Salvaje, was financed in part by uh, French and Spanish money as well. Mm-hmm. So Mexican filmmakers, I mean, in part because of the three amigos, Cuarón, González Iñárritu, and Guillermo del Toro. And Emmanuel Lubezki, the cinematographer, now have a reputation in other countries, right? So there are other countries are like, okay, Mexican filmmakers are not that bad; they're great.
3: Hmm?
2: So as I said, festivals, uh, you know, Spanish television, Sank in France—they are supporting Mexican filmmakers. So I do think that they are looking for other ways. But in a way, there's a counter argument to be had about neo-colonialism of the film industry. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole new debate. But uh, it's, yeah, in is something like Screen Australia. It would be very hard to get a project in Australia off the ground without the support of Screen Australia. It's something very similar. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm optimistic because there's talent.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, I can say anything I want about the Mexican film industry, but there's great filmmakers in Mexico. So as long as there's talent and we're very stubborn, Mexicans are very, very stubborn, so I do have hope. And I mean, the movies that we have shown mm -hmm, speak volumes of the talent of Mexican filmmakers. So does that answer your question? Yeah. And Netflix. I mean, a lot of people hate Netflix in terms of distribution, but for example, Cuaron's new movie, Roma, is going to be distributed through Netflix. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's another platform that uh, filmmakers can use.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, please join me in thanking Cesar and Antonio for their brilliant talk.
0: You have been listening to an ACA podcast recorded by ACA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit aca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.